Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers the current events surrounding Season 3, Part 9, the historical context for this episode, what was in the news, what was on the cover of Time Magazine, what was in movie theaters, and so forth. This episode aired on Sunday, July 9th, 2017. There was a two-week break for the 4th of July weekend, so nobody knew what was going to follow up Part 8 for two whole weeks. It was a good episode to put right before that break. The number one film in the country this weekend was Spider-Man Homecoming, which made $117 million at the box office. I think that might be the biggest take we've seen so far for a box office weekend. Every generation needs its own Spider-Man, if by uh, every generation you mean three incarnations within the span of a decade. Nothing demonstrates the absurdity of Hollywood's obsession with reboots more than this particular piece of intellectual property, at least in my opinion. In this case, this particular film integrates uh, perhaps Marvel's most famous superhero into its cinematic universe for the first time, bringing the flagship Iron Man character into the mix so that Robert Downey Jr. can serve as a wisecracking mentor to the new Spidey, this time played by the 21-year-old Tom Holland, who's replacing the 34-year-old Andrew Garfield and the 42-year-old Tobey Maguire. Which makes me think that maybe constant recasting is called for when it comes to the teenage Peter Parker, or maybe they've just been casting him too old to begin with. Amusingly, the film incorporates another famous superhero actor as a villain, with one-time Batman Michael Keaton playing Vulture. In the news, after a brutal nine months of combat, the city of Mosul was officially freed from the Islamic State on this day, with Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Adabi arriving to proclaim victory. Officially, the battle would not be over until the final clashes with pockets of ISIS fighters, which ended 12 days later but this was the declaration. This was the largest military operation since the U.S. invaded Iraq 14 years earlier, for the U.S., obviously, and the fiercest urban warfare since World War II. ISIS was a fanatical extremist group born out of the Iraq War when the U.S. toppled Saddam Hussein and, rather self-fulfillingly, created a vacuum that ISIS's direct predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq, rushed in to fill. ISIS had captured large areas of Syria and Iraq in 2013, and Mosul was the site of some of the fiercest resistance. This was where, almost exactly three years earlier, ironically on the U.S.'s Independence Day, ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had delivered a sermon soon after his conquest, declaring a caliphate and urging all Muslims to swear allegiance to him. ISIS's occupation of the city was brutal, fermenting public beheadings and the trafficking of sex slaves. However, many deaths were also due to the U.S. bombing campaign, especially after President Trump removed restrictions from Air Force conduct and encouraged a more violent approach. Of particular notoriety was the Mosul Massacre, where an American-led assault resulted in the death of over 200 civilians. With a savage campaign over, many Iraqis interviewed by American press were as likely to express resignation as relief. After more than half a million residents fled, reluctant to return, even after hostilities ended, the ones left behind told the New York Times that ISIS was as much a mindset as an organization, and they feared what their neighbors would do in the future. The Time Magazine cover this week was called The Lie Detector, from the week uh, that began July 3rd, 2017. A black-and-white portrait of special counsel Robert Mueller, head blocking out much of the bright white Time logo, crowns this issue with the caption, Someone's Not Telling the Truth. Inside, the article delves into Mueller's past as a Vietnam hero, quite explicitly contrasted with Trump, who said that dodging STDs in the 70s was, quote, my Vietnam on a Howard Stern show. The article also explores his history as the very significant post-9-11 FBI director 
and his new assignation as the man to dig into Trump's potential collusion with Russia, as well as possible obstruction into the investigation. Having recently revisited Time Magazine issues from the 90s, when Twin Peaks originally ran, both Mueller and the prose used to describe him feel quite reminiscent of that time to me, as baby boomers sick of being 60s outcast gobbled up the prestige and patriotic fervor of events like the Gulf War back then, and the Mueller investigation more recently, in order to find a cudgel of respectability to either weaponize against or attempt to ingratiate itself with an ascendant right. This process reached its apotheosis before, between these two points during the early war on terror in the 2000s. By now, this approach seemed pretty outdated, meaning by 2017 already. The right was no longer at all interested in that old-fashioned, upright sort of traditionalism. A good example of this would be the media's love affair and the Republican base's lukewarm reception for John McCain in the 2000s. The article seems to already hint at the possible failure of summoning Mueller as the grand nemesis, capital N and all, for Trump's hubris. Sure enough, within a couple years, when the long-winded, much-hyped investigation finally wrapped up, Mueller appeared to testify about his report looking frail and fumbling, his findings yielding little that was not already known, and his own by-the-book obsessiveness drove him to extremes of caution, preventing any sort of explicit recommendation that Congress take action against a criminal president. But back at this early date, in the summer of 2017, Time recognized the vast divide separating the two conceptions of what had already unfolded. They aptly described these visions back-to-back as follows. I've inserted a bit of an ellipsis, but this is pretty much straight from the article. Quote, It's safe to say the investigation won't be a source of national unity. With internet speed, pro- and anti-Trump factions have created rational and plausible, yet utterly irreconcilable, histories of an investigation that has barely even begun. To Trump supporters, this is the story of an unconventional agent of change, elected to break up a failed status quo. In their view, the elites, with help from their leaky minions embedded throughout the government, have turned on the new president to protect their own power. When Trump fired Comey in hopes of piercing the empty Russian balloon, Comey took his revenge in classic insider style. He arranged to have a friend leak memos that would prompt the appointment of a special counsel. And that turned out to be Mueller, a longtime Comey associate, who, despite his straight-hour reputation, has installed Democratic donors in his prosecutorial dream team. Trump's foes tell a different story. Theirs involves a billionaire, whose undisclosed business interests may involve rich Russians as financiers and customers. After winning a narrow victory in an election plagued by Russian hacking, the new president surrounded himself with aides and advisors who had undisclosed Russian contacts. And when the FBI opened an investigation, the president abruptly fired the bureau's director. Comey's subsequent testimony about his awkward interactions with Trump raised the specter of obstruction of justice, made meteor by the president's admission that he was trying to make the Russia issue go away. With Attorney General Jeff Sessions recused from the matter because of his role with the Trump campaign, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had no choice but to name a special counsel, and the veteran Mueller was an obvious choice. Is there enough common ground between these two realities to give any hope of a clear resolution? Elsewhere, pitching this confrontation in a wider context, the article muses, So, like hurricane watchers dashing to the grocery store, Washington's ruling Republicans are trying to jam through a health care bill before the investigation inundates the Capitol. Decimated Democrats are squabbling over a party identity to give shape to their rising hopes. Interest groups, having geared up for fights over taxes and regulations, are pivoting to wage war on this new battleground. Out in America, meanwhile, many battered and anxious voters find themselves back at 
seemingly unmovable square one, who or what can lead the country out of this sour patch of history? That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow's episode covers the in-the-weeds details, where we look at character rankings, the order that the scenes may take place in, and of course, as always, coffee, pie, and donuts. By the end of June, Iraqi forces were confident that they could eradicate ISIS from the city. The mosque that Baghdadi had spoken from three years earlier lay in ruins. Victory is settled, and remaining Daesh are trapped in the last spans. Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi said, using the Arabic abbreviation for Islamic State, it is only a matter of time before we announce the big victory to our people. Now, Mosul presents a new challenge for the Shiite-led Iraqi government. A significant portion of the youth has been indoctrinated quite heavily by the Islamic State. They've been recruited by ISIS, they've been trained by ISIS. Getting them back into some kind of meaningful, productive relationship with the rest of their society is going to be a very real problem.